The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I think sort of another way of, of reading that is Justice Jackson saying, please do not read Tamina as us upholding some common law version of Section 230 in the absence of us actually saying anything about Section 230. So do not overread Tamina. This is sort of how I how I read it for, for all the sort of Section 230 heads out there who are trying to figure out to what extent Tamina does or does not impact the thing that they really care about, which is not necessarily Section 230, but the substantive question of whether or not platforms should ever be held liable for third-party content. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 24th, 2023. The Supreme Court last week issued the biggest opinion in the history of the internet, except that it didn't. Rather, it issued an opinion in a case involving the Anti-Terrorism Act and the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, finding there was no cause of action and thus dismissed for further consideration the biggest case in the history of the internet. It was a bit of a flame out for the big Section 230 showdown at the Supreme Court. We gathered in the virtual jungle studio to talk about it. Scott R. Anderson, Lawfare Senior Editor, Quinta Jurassic, Lawfare Senior Editor, and Alan Rosenstein, another Lawfare Senior Editor. Together they are the Rational Security Crew, but not today. Today we are talking Section 230 and the big case that wasn't at the Supreme Court, and the case of Tomna v. Twitter, which made it all go away. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 24th, the big internet case that wasn't. So, Alan, I want to start for those who have been living in a gonzalez Tomna cave for the last six months with a bit of procedural history and how we got there. Last week, the Supreme Court surprised everybody by ruling in a case that I think most people expected not to come down until June. Uh, It's two cases, but they're related, except that they're not. What happened? Well, anyone who has not been aware of this, I very much envy, because this has been a lot of our lives for, as it turns out, fairly little payoff. So these two cases uh, all stem from the same set of attacks in the mid-2010s that ISIS committed in Paris um, that led to the deaths of many individuals, including several Americans. The families of those Americans killed in those terrorist attacks then sued a number of social media companies, um, including uh, YouTube and Twitter. And just to be clear, why do we sue social media companies when terrorists kill our families? 
members? Well, we don't just have to sue social media companies. We can, of course, sue the terrorists, but it tends to be hard to get those terrorists into court. Those terrorists are often judgment-proof. Suing ISIS, uh, while something that is probably good for society, is not something that tends to be uh, terribly effective uh, in terms of vindicating one's interest, in particular monetarily. Uh, But also, uh, if what you're concerned about is the spread of terrorist content, through the internet, because you're concerned that that will lead to radicalization and recruiting, then it might actually be more effective to go after the large platforms that host that content, and frankly, all the other content in our digital world. So the plaintiffs, the families of these victims, uh, sued YouTube, uh, and uh, which is owned by Google and Alphabet, and also they also sued Twitter, alleging um, that these two companies had uh, effectively aided and abetted the terrorist attacks, um, not directly in the sense of knowing that ISIS was going to commit these attacks and helping them to commit those attacks, but just generally by providing services to ISIS. And the specific services was allowing ISIS to use Twitter, allowing ISIS to use YouTube. Again, not necessarily to plan the attacks, but just to spread their message, therefore to increase their recruiting and on the margin to assist these organizations. The laws that were substantively attempting to be used by the plaintiffs were the Anti-Terrorism Act, as well as another uh, act that we'll we'll get into the details of this, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. And the role of uh, those laws um, uh, was in the language of 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 standard first-year torts, the, the substantive tort claim. Now, what made this complicated for the plaintiffs, or at least what we thought, uh, we, the commentariat, made this so complicated for the plaintiffs, was that there's another law, uh, the one that's much more, I think, familiar probably to this audience and to the public in general, called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And this is the law that's been in the news an enormous amount over the last several years that, broadly speaking, immunizes platforms for harms arising from content created by third parties that the platforms then host. And the, the trick for uh, the plaintiffs was to figure out how to overcome uh, that law, which has been interpreted in, in a very broad uh, way. And the plaintiffs argued that Section 230 uh, does not immunize the platforms because uh, they weren't just sort of passively hosting the content on their servers, but that through recommendation algorithms and the like, they were actively engaging and actively helping to create and promote the content that caused this uh, damage. So these cases all wended their way through the Ninth Circuit, which ultimately concluded, though the procedural posture of these cases is somewhat different, which ends up being quite important at the Supreme Court level, and we'll talk about that, that there uh, was a plausible claim under the terrorism statutes. And in addition, that Section 230 did not immunize platforms for recommending this content. Uh, and the Supreme Court granted cert on these two cases, bifurcating them uh, based on the issue. So although Gonzalez and Tomna are fundamentally the same case in the sense that they fundamentally come out of the same facts, Gonzalez is about the Section 230 issue, and Tomna is about the ATA and the, the JASTA, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism issue. And then just to, to close, the reason why these cases were so high profile is a little ironic. As it turns out, what everyone was worried about, which was that in the process of adjudicating the Section 230 claim, the Supreme Court might upend internet law, um, turns out not to have been ultimately the grounds on which the Supreme Court resolved these issues. And instead, in Tomna, and we'll talk about this all in, in great detail, I'm sure, 
the Supreme Court held unanimously that, in fact, there was no substantive ATA, Anti-Terrorism Act claim, something that uh, most uh, commentators, uh, not folks like Ben and Scott, but most other commentators were not really focused on. uh, And that ultimately made the other Section 230 issue essentially moot. And the Supreme Court ultimately did not decide anything interesting about Section 230. Okay, so Quinta, as simply as you can, uh, explain to us what the Supreme Court did. <laughs> oh God, um, this is a this is a pop quiz. So essentially, let's start with Tomna, and Scott can go into much more of the details here. But essentially, the gist is that the court found in Tomna that Tamne had failed to state a claim under the Anti-Terrorism Act and JASTA, um, that they did not have a substantive liability claim against Twitter. And then that essentially helped them dispatch with Gonzalez, because if there was no claim under the ATN JASTA and Tamne, because as we've set out, uh, these cases concerned very similar fact patterns, one involving uh, attack in France and Gonzalez and Tomna involving uh, ISIS attack in Turkey. Um, that meant that there was not a uh, claim to be made under the ATA and JASTA um, and Gonzalez as well, which essentially meant that there was no reason for the court to deal with a Section 230 question. So the court simply uh, vacated the Ninth Circuit's judgment and remanded it to that circuit, which will presumably dismiss it. Okay, just to round out the overview, help out those of those those listeners who were like, wait a minute. How did this go from being the biggest internet case of all time to being kind of a nothing that's about the Anti-Terrorism Act? What explains the difference between the expectations and the reality of these two cases? So I think it's important to say to start off that, you know, we're kind of joking around about people calling it the biggest internet case ever or so on, but it really could have been that big, right? I don't I don't want to understate just how earth-shaking this could have been. This was, Gonzalez was the first case in which the Supreme Court had ever considered Section 230, which is really the bedrock of the internet as we know it. And if the court had decided to substantively alter that liability regime, the internet post-Gonzalez could have looked very, very different than the internet pre-Gonzalez. I think, honestly, what happened is that the court, for whatever reason, granted certiorari in these cases. Um, I think it's fair to surmise, although this is speculation, that they were, at least four justices, were eager to get a bite at the apple of Section 230. We know that uh, Justice Thomas has had a a bee in his bonnet about this for a while. Um, And then Tom sort of necessarily went along with it uh, because of the procedural posture, as we've discussed. But then when they actually looked at the briefing and the amicus briefs, which really poured in, it turned out that this was just not a good vehicle for addressing that issue. It's a weird case. As Daphne Keller uh, put it on Twitter, and I highly recommend Daphne's Twitter for anyone who's interested in these issues, these cases were just 
weak um, for the the plaintiffs. Um, they did not have particularly strong claims that in Gonzalez, for example, focusing on the 230 issue, it's simply, you know, as, as Alan kind of sketched out, there's not really a clear line to be drawn between the ISIS videos that were allegedly on YouTube and the attack itself. Um, and the question of algorithmic amplification is a really, really tricky one, precisely because there are algorithms in everything. There are questions that have to do with platforms judgment about ranking and everything, including, you know, a simple Google search. And so the justices seemed very, very conscious during oral arguments that they had, you know, potentially really opened Pandora's box here, that this was a lot more tangled than they might have thought. And so the way I read it, at least, is that they sort of looked at that and said, we don't want to touch this right now. Uh, maybe in the future, um, and we can talk about Justice Jackson's concurrence in Tomna and what that suggests, but like, not this, not now. And so I think it was pretty widely suggested um, after oral arguments, which went pretty terribly for the uh, petitioners in Gonzalez, that the court might figure out a way to dismiss the case as improvidently granted. That's not exactly what they did here, um, but it, it has a kind of the same energy, just saying, like, we don't want to touch this right now. All right. So, Scott, uh, we hear a lot of this. The case was super hard. The Supreme Court kind of had no way of knowing that uh, 230 was a tough issue. Uh, they get all these amicus briefs and all of a sudden they get cold feet and decide this isn't a good vehicle. Do you buy it? I'm not sure it's 100% right. You know, most of the commentary on this case has come from people who focus on Section 230 because that's really the grab. And there's a very big community of those people out there, particularly on the internet, not surprising, who talk about 230 a lot and its implications. Um, and, and this case obviously has implications for 230. But there's a fundamental, I think, problem with the assessment that the resolution of this case all hinged on 230, because to get to the 230 question in this case, the court would have had to resolve Tomna in a way that would have interpreted the ATA secondary liability provision, the actual statutory question at issue in Tomna, incredibly broadly. That had potentially very, very broad policy ramifications in a way that the U.S. government was actually surprisingly, to some extent, in my in my view, having dealt with a lot of these cases over the years, an oral argument very frank about saying that this really actually could raise a policy question if we go as far as the plaintiffs need to go to win their case here. And I think when you see the case in that light, when you look at it as saying, well, we've got to pass through this gate first, meaning the ATA gate, to even get to this 230 question. And then also you have to deal with the fact the U.S. government's raising genuine national security policy concerns and, and non-national security policy concerns, economic policy concerns, with the conclusion that the court would have to reach to reach 230 questions. This is why I was pretty dubious from the outset that that this case was ever going to hit 230, um, as I know you were too as well, Ben. And, and you know, it, I do think there's a little bit of a hammer and nails issue here for people who are seeing all of these developments through the light of Section 230. I think- there's a well, certainly, you know, the grant of certiorari um, may have been motivated in part by a desire to look at and discuss these 230 issues. The actual resolution of this case, I suspect, had at least as much to do with discomfort around the ATA holding itself. Yeah. So the, the only bit I want to add to, to Quinta and Scott's sort of excellent description of what's going on here is that, you know, although Scott is right that, you know, to do this the right way, you'd have to first 
decide the kind of Tomna issue in favor of the plaintiffs, and only then would the 230 issue be relevant. In reality, the Supreme Court can do whatever it wants. So like, if they really wanted to talk about 230, they could have decided Tomna and then just decided the 230 case and just ignored the fact that it all be dicta. Because again, magic wizards can do whatever magic wizards want to do. Um, that's the great part of being the Supreme Court. The, the reason that they didn't answer the 230 question after telling everyone that they wanted to answer the 230 question, because of course they granted certiorari on the 230 question, has to do with, I think, just the complexity of 230. And here's where I depart, I think, a little bit from the consensus that this was a quote-unquote bad vehicle for discussing the 230 issues. This wasn't a great vehicle for all the reasons that Quinta and Scott have mentioned, right? The, the weirdness around there being a additional issue around the ATA and JASTA, the fact that this was not sort of heartland 230, this was really about recommendation algorithms rather than other parts of 230. But I, I don't think that there are substantially better vehicles, frankly, for dealing with 230, because the real problem is just that 230 is exceptionally hard to figure out. Um, it's a very, I, I think, ambiguous statute. It has enormous stakes because it is the foundation of the modern internet. And you know, tiny changes to it will have profound ramifications. And there are weighty interests on both sides. So um, although it, it may be the case that this was not the best vehicle for 230, there are no good vehicles for 230. It's always going to be an absolutely difficult case. And if the Supreme Court didn't answer the 230 question here, because it's hoping that the next time it's presented with a 230 case, it's somehow going to be easier for it to decide, then they're just delusional. Like you could have the most perfectly presented 230 case and it would still be unbelievably difficult, I think, for the court to specify exactly when 230 does and does not apply because the extremes are um, very unattractive. Um, and anything in the middle is unbelievably difficult to specify with enough clarity as to give the you know, internet economy any sort of uh, certainty as to what the rules are. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, 
that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, so we have two issues on our plate. One is the case that the Supreme Court did resolve, and the second is the future of 230 in light of the fact that the Supreme Court did not touch that. So Scott, I want to start with uh, the case that the court did resolve, which is the JASTA-Tomna issue. 
And uh, this is an issue that most people just gloss over, but we're lawfare and this is heartland lawfare stuff. So give us a little bit of, uh, let's nerd out on Tomna for a minute. What is the secondary liability provision of JASTA and why does the Supreme Court of all the things that they can't agree on agree nine to nothing that there's no cause of action here? So there's a very long history behind that question uh, that could take up its own podcast, if not podcast series. Um, but I'll, let me try and give a short version with a little added context that I think is missed in a lot of the commentary around this case. Uh, the underlying statutory cause of action, the thing that allows people to sue that's an issue here is the Anti-Terrorism Act Civil Liability Provision. That's 18 U.S.C. 2333 for anyone reading along at home. Um, that's been on the books since 1992 uh, in one form or another, substantially amended a few different times. And that law, that provision has long provided for treble damages, meaning triple damages, meaning really extraordinary sums of money and awards. I just want to cut in and... Uh, say that the use of the word treble, which is only appropriate in front of the word damages, has always annoyed me a little bit. I myself as well, especially because it sounds like triple. <laughs> so it's very confusing because it just means triple, but they say triple damages here. And, and if you're a musician, then you think of the treble clef. So it's really, there's a lot to unpack here. It's 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 screwed up from all sorts of directions, agreed. The, the basic issue with the statutory provision is that Congress gave a pretty broad cause of action for people, specifically Americans, affected by acts of terrorism that ties the claim to all sorts of other references to terrorism in U.S. criminal code and actually potentially state law and other law provisions, which makes it very open-ended and very unclear and ambiguous exactly where the parameters of that liability is. And so for the you know 30-odd years this law has been on the books, we have seen this constant battle and struggle between usually up to the courts of appeals, being courts very rarely gets involved, but lots and lots of cases trying to get to the Supreme Court, trying to figure out, well, this very broad, open-ended, word, poorly worded statute that Congress has enacted, what exactly does it make people liable for and what it doesn't. And because it's so broad and because it provides such huge sums of money, there's a big incentive there for plaintiffs and then attorneys who like to represent plaintiffs to pursue innovative causes of action. Because if you pursue 10 cases, maybe you only win one, but that one will pay off for the other nine. So you get a lot of very innovative litigation around how to interpret this cause of action. And on top of that, these are very, very sympathetic plaintiffs for very good reason. These are Americans who've been often injured by terrorism or had family members killed by terrorism. There are also sometimes other plaintiffs, but that's that's kind of the most traditional name or, or, or focused on plaintiff. And they have a lot of support from Congress. And so we see this case where we have seen interpretations of the statutory provision um, that are very broad, get knocked down by federal courts, and then Congress steps in and enacts a provision that kind of reinstates and sometimes tweaks a little bit what the interpretation was. That's what happened with the civil liability provision that's at issue here in JASTA, 2016 law that Congress enacted over President Obama's veto, in part mostly because of a different provision of the law that had to do with Saudi Arabia and reinvigorating 9-11 related claims against it. This provision that reinserted this secondary liability argument basically was meant to reverse a judicial decision that had said, no, the original broad language of this civil liability provision didn't allow for secondary liability, meaning liability for someone who just aids and abets or assists or conspires with or otherwise facilitates a direct tort fees or somebody who actually is doing a wrongful act. 
And it reinstated it by inserting this language that says essentially a person who may be held liable who aids and abets by knowingly providing substantial assistance. That's the key language the court's interpreting here. And then it does two kind of wonky things. First, Jasta says in the text, hey, we think we are trying, we at Congress in enacting this law are trying to establish the broadest possible basis for allowing for civil liability in regards to terrorism. Just kind of a statement of purpose and intent. And then they say specifically in regards to the secondary liability provision, this should be interpreted in light of Halberstam v. Welsh, a 1983 DC circuit case that is kind of a seminal case in laying out the common law principles of secondary liability. The plaintiffs in Tomna, and they're not alone in this, have interpreted this provision, which is going through now its own evolution and series of cases and challenges, interpretations through a variety of courts of appeals in the United States. This isn't the last we've heard of this provision, possibly even before the Supreme Court, although I kind of doubt the Supreme Court will take it up again. But in this case, this particular line, you saw these plaintiffs be able to seize on these two aspects of JASTA and assert Congress really intended here create really, really broad liability for companies that knowingly, even if they didn't do it deliberately or intentionally, but if they knowingly were providing services to a terrorist group, essentially this law, Congress meant for it to make them liable for every act of terrorism by that terrorist group. Not for just the specific act, because these plaintiffs couldn't allege and didn't allege any specific relationship between the services that Twitter and these other companies provided to ISIS and the actual attack itself. That was the theory the Ninth Circuit bid on and allowed the case to go forward. And it's worth noting here that decision and the decision here is based on a motion to dismiss. It doesn't mean that they're actually determining final liability. It's a determination that basically allows the matter to proceed to trial and particularly to result in discovery. So Twitter and these other companies would still have the chance to affirmatively prove, no, like we didn't do anything to facilitate this. But this is all based on the legal theory, the allegations the plaintiffs put forward. And assuming they're correct, are they stating something that's legally available? In in my view, I'm not surprised that the Supreme Court wasn't willing to go that far. Because again, we saw the US government kind of in slightly guarded terms, or frankly, less guarded than they often are in this litigation, say during oral arguments, this is a dangerous scope of liability to put out there. It creates all sorts of foreign policy and all sorts of economic policy questions and problems for us. It can chill all sorts of very, very good behavior we don't want to chill companies from doing. And for that reason, I wasn't terribly surprised to see the Supreme Court come in and say, well, we're not really willing to go that far. We're going to stick to common law, aid or in a better principles, even though Congress did say we want to embrace the broadest possible liability in JASA. And even though there are lots of ways to read Halberstam v. Walsh, where you could read it to imply much broader liability, the court declined to do that. They said, no, you really got to look at core underlying common law principles. That implies that there has to be some relationship that the court fudged with uh, between the act itself and the secondary assistance, the aiding and abetting that's taking place. And then that there also has to be some, uh, not just knowledge, but some sort of kind of intentional participation. And that's where we saw the court come out 9-0. Yeah. So can I try to just summarize that and see if you agree with the following very crude summary. Supreme Court basically says, hey, if you're providing services to the general public and you have no reason to know you're dealing with terrorists and they're using your service like anybody else in the context of a giant operation, whether it's you know, banking or, or you know, communications technology or whatever, 
you're not reasonably described as aiding and abetting. And uh, there has to be some more intentionality or something more proximate to the act that uh, you're accused of, of aiding. Is that a is that a fair summary? Yeah, exactly. There has to be more of a relationship there. The, the proximate cause language, which is how I, I tend to think of this, is one that the court did not use and actually does kind of apply to a slightly different concept. But basically, it's it's the overall relationship. And so there's a super fact-heavy inquiry. You know, there's ways lots of other courts could have approached this, but in the, and, the, and that different courts will interpret the same standard to very different fact patterns, potentially very different ways. It's hard to pin down because it's ultimately about this relationship and this very specific set of facts. But the Supreme Court gets to draw the line where it draws the line. And in this case, it said, well, this set of facts just doesn't reach up to this bar that we're setting. All right. So Quinta, there is a sole concurrence in this opinion by uh, the new justice, uh, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, that seems anxious about the the flip side of what Scott is saying. That is the degree to which this case might preclude actions. Uh, it's vaguely worded, but how do you read it? I found uh, Justice Jackson's concurrence really interesting, particularly read in light of some of her questions during the Gonzalez oral argument. Um, so during that oral argument, she'd raised questions about how Section 230 should be interpreted that indicated that she was sympathetic to a a view of the statute that would constrain the liability shield, perhaps for platforms that took, you know, more greater steps to protect users from dangerous material. Um, So sometimes this is described as a sort of good Samaritan vision of the statute, which I think suggested to a lot of people listening and and to me as well, that she was maybe uh, a little uh, more skeptical of the position of Google and other corporations that use Section 230 uh, to shield them from from, uh, lawsuits. So With that in mind, I found her concurrence in Tomna very interesting. She basically, as you say, it's very vaguely worded. What she essentially is saying is, uh, she writes, I join the opinion of the court with the understanding that today's decisions are narrow in important respects. And that's essentially uh, the point of her two-paragraph concurrence, that we're operating here on a very limited factual record. Um, she she says explicitly, other cases presenting different allegations and different records may lead to different conclusions, and then suggests that the general principles of tort and criminal law that the court used to inform its understanding of the ATA and JASTA may not apply in other contexts. So I at least read that as Justice Jackson saying, you know, hey, try again <laughs> um, with a, another lawsuit, maybe under a different cause of action. Um, my, I'm definitely open to, you know, hearing these kinds of, of suits in the future. Yeah, and, and just to jump on that, I, I I think sort of another way of of reading that is Justice Jackson saying, please do not read Tamina as us upholding some common law version of Section 230 in the absence of us actually saying anything about Section 230. So do yes, not overread yeah. Tamina. This is sort of how I how I read it for for all the sort of Section 230 heads out there who are trying to figure out to what extent Tamina does or does not impact the thing that they really care about, which is not necessarily Section 230, but the substantive question of whether or not platforms should ever be held liable for third-party content. 
And there, there's actually one other caveat or carve out the court makes that's worth flagging that's kind of interesting and, and may kick up another round of litigation down the road if the plaintiffs are allowed to amend their complaint. The majority specifically, or the court, I should say, specifically notes that there's a set of allegations that they distinguish from this treatment, at least in theory, or at least potentially distinguish. And that's specific to Google, an allegation that YouTube, which is owned by Google, had essentially taken in ISIS-related videos and somehow reviewed and approved them as some sort of revenue-sharing system. And they specifically single out these allegations implying that the same legal standard or the same conclusion might not apply if you assign the same legal standard here. Even though, kind of interestingly, I still think it's a fairly passive system in terms of direct active involvement, but perhaps the review element is what they see different, perhaps the involvement of revenue sharing. It's not 100% clear. Here they say, we're not going to reach this because the plaintiffs actually didn't allege in their in their initial complaint make any factual allegations to support this. We have no way of knowing whether this is actually a substantial assistance or not. Basically, no one have enough actual alleged facts to reach any sort of legal conclusion. Um, but in theory, in theory, the plaintiffs may be allowed to amend their complaint to fill in those facts and come back, and the Supreme Court has left the door open to that part of their claim. All right. So let's turn from here to 230, which is the dog that didn't bark or the elephant that wasn't in the room or maybe the elephant whose ghost was in the room. Alan, what happens to 230? Uh, We've had a uh, a big set of dust-ups in the lower courts about it. Um, The Supreme Court has now either because the question was too hard or because this is a bad vehicle, ducked it. We have a hundred proposals in Congress to change, amend, reform, or obliterate it. And there doesn't seem to be any majority anywhere to do any specific thing. So uh, do we just clop along with 230 as written and as broadly interpreted, or is there some intervening event that is uh, going to make us think about it differently? I, I do think, to continue your, your wonderful metaphor, that the the elephant ghost of 230 just clops along. You know, the, we don't know what happens next. Uh, you know, the 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 jurisprudential effect is that nothing happens, and we just continue to fight over 230, and the lower courts continue to fight over it. You know, I do think this is going to come back to the Supreme Court, frankly, sooner rather than later, because I just think they're going to be circuit splits. But why? There hasn't, there's never really been a circuit split about 230. All the courts have largely followed the Fourth Circuit's broad interpretation. We've had 30 years of lower court broad interpretation. And then this one outlying Ninth Circuit opinion that says, okay, it doesn't really cover algorithms. The Supreme Court says, well, we're not going to answer that question. So why, where does the circuit split come from? Well, so I'd say two things. I think the Ninth Circuit is not a trivial circuit, both in its size and prestige and influence, and especially around tech matters. I think it's notable that the Ninth Circuit, uh, you know, the one that has Silicon Valley in it, was the one that ultimately decided to be the first to try to limit Section 230 in a substantial way. And while you're right that the algorithmic amplification issue is not you know, the, the absolute central 230 issue, it's really, really important because, as we all know, algorithms are such a critical part of how modern social media operates. Um, so the fact that the Ninth Circuit made this ruling suggests that the Ninth Circuit may very well just do it again. Uh, because, of course, there's nothing about algorithmic cases 
that is connected inherently to terrorism issues. So you could just have another case that comes up that doesn't have this uh, you know, ATA JASTA stuff going on. And if the Ninth Circuit did that, some other circuit might as well. Um, you know, this is not to mention the fact that I think Section 230 is just, it's just getting a beating from both sides. There are plenty of folks on the left who don't like it. There are plenty of folks on the right who don't like it. I think that you know, just to take the, the conservative legal movement as an example, um, I think across a number of dimensions, judges, you know, at the district and circuit court levels who were appointed, you know, for example, by the Trump administration have shown uh, a lot of comfort in being, let's call it forward leaning about the law and not necessarily sticking with settled precedent. You could easily imagine one of them trying to blow up Section 230. Um, and you can imagine that also uh, on the on the on the left. Right. I have no reason to think that um, Biden's nominees are as a whole, particularly committed to, to section 230. Um, and, and so I, you know, I, I just, I, I think now that the ninth circuit has, um, taken the step of issuing an opinion that limits section 230. And of course it's, 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 you know, vacated, right? So, so it's not precedential, um, in the ninth circuit, but they can just do it again. Now that they've done that, I think that takes some of the sort of taboo off of not just following the, you know, 1997's Iran decision from the Fourth Circuit, which is which is the, the case that you're referring to, Ben, that has set out the, the terms of debate for the last uh, 25 years. Um, that's just, you know, that that's on the judicial side. On Congress's side, you're absolutely right that there are a million different proposals to limit Section 230, to end Section 230, to expand Section 230, to do this, to do that, um, not just in Congress, but also uh, on the state's the, the states as well, uh, though, of course, they're more constrained because of Section 230's preemption provision. I'm actually m- more skeptical that actually we'll see anything come of that. I don't think the number of bills in Congress is a particularly good proxy for the probability of Congress acting. Um, I think right now the status quo, um, because of the dominant Fourth Circuit interpretation of Section 230, really favors the tech companies. And the tech companies, although hardly beloved in Washington, D.C., are still incredibly powerful lobbyists. And so just the general inertia of Congress, especially in a divided age, uh, makes me think that legislative change to Section 230 is unlikely to happen. And and so, you know, I would guess that, uh, you know, a, a circuit split is likely to happen sooner than legislative reform. Though, again, Ben, you are right that it is also possible that we just stick with the Zoran interpretation forever. I just am doubtful of that because of how much criticism it's been getting from all sides. All right. So, Quinta, uh, how much of that do you agree with? Or do you think that the either the courts or Congress is going to see this as some kind of green light to kind of work its will on on 230? I don't know. Um, I think what Alan says makes a, a lot of sense. I mean, I, I do think that kind of the next case that we have coming down the pipeline, two cases really, um, that concern platform moderation are the net choice cases, which have to do with the Texas and Florida social media laws, uh, limiting platform discretion to moderate as well as requiring some, uh, transparency reporting. Now, the, the, Cases are postured so that so currently there uh, the, the Supreme Court is deciding whether to grant cert. We're waiting on a brief from the Solicitor General. Um, they're postured as First Amendment cases rather than Section two hundred and thirty cases, but Section two hundred and thirty is pretty clearly implicated by the underlying statutes. Um, and the reason I bring this up is not only that the court will, in some sense, get probably get another bite at the apple if they grant cert, which I think everybody kind of assumes they will. But also because we've seen the what the Fifth Circuit is willing to make of, of Section 230 to some extent, 
and in the the lower court ruling in the Nut Choice v. Paxton case, the Fifth Circuit sort of en route to its First Amendment decision made some pretty out there claims about Section 230. Alan, you should correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, of course the panel may be different if this is heard again, but I think what what that suggested to me is that at least in the Fifth Circuit, uh, there's real energy for kind of turning the statute upside down and maybe doing some weird things with it. And so given that, I wouldn't be hugely surprised if we sort of get a circuit split just because there is so much energy in the lower courts, particularly uh, among judges uh, recently appointed by President Trump to kind of take a crack at this. Alan, does that sound right to you? It, it does. And I think just generally, we should uh, we should institutionalize the phrase, big Fifth Circuit energy. I think, that, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's very evocative. Shouts to, shouts to Judge Oldham. And so on the legislative front, what I think is interesting is how we've seen kind of a shift in energy um, over the last, I don't know, six months, a year or so away from legislation around Section 230 and toward legislation that is focusing on child safety and TikTok. Um, and some of that may be because everybody was kind of waiting for the court to rule on Gonzalez and so they didn't want to put the cart before the horse. And maybe that will change now that Gonzalez kind of retained the the status quo. Um, but we've seen, you know, the state of Montana has a TikTok ban. The state of Utah um, has substantially limited uh, children's access to social media. Nominally, I hear that VPN usage is up. And of course, the federal uh, government, Congress is trying to figure out what it wants to do about TikTok. And it strikes me that obviously, to some extent, these implicate similar issues. But I think what's important to understand is that I would argue that all this legislation is kind of a different ways of getting at the same underlying sense on the part of legislators, which is something is wrong on the internet. And it's just kind of a different way of getting there. And so I do wonder with TikTok taking over as kind of the big villain, whether that means that the legislative energy will be directed that way. And that, you know, for the next year, instead of talking about Section 230, all that we're going to be talking about is, you know, whether the First Amendment prevents a ban of TikTok, which Alan recorded an excellent podcast on that you should all listen to. All right, Scott, what are your, uh, what do you envision in the future on both the litigation and legislative side, given this uh, rather deflating disposition? My suspicion is is that this is not going to be the last time, frankly, we see ATA and Section 230 uh, come into loggerheads with each other. They're very curiously kind of oppositely situated statute. The ATA, you have incredibly broad cause of action that Congress has framed even more broadly in statements of intent and purpose that's open to lots of interpretation and provides a financial incentive to uh, lawyers and plaintiffs to go ahead and interpret innovatively and pursue litigation aggressively to pursue novel interpretations of. And then you have Section 230, a very broad protection from liability, but that nonetheless people think is vulnerable or might be primed for being contained in different ways. And by the way, they both deal with social media companies and internet companies, which are used widely by terrorist groups for a variety of purposes because terrorism is ultimately a social endeavor. It is kind of a very, very unique uniquely situated pair of statutes that we're seeing come into loggerheads here. But I, I'm not surprised to see it. I actually had a project I was getting primed to start when CERT got granted looking at these two statutes. And now I'm going to pick it back up now that this case has been resolved. Because um, I think we're going to see other areas where we're going to see plaintiffs 
attacking internet companies using ATA potentially validly and then pushing against the limits of 230 in various regards down the line. I think we've seen a couple of cases actually already begin to percolate up. And that's setting aside the possibility that, as they have in the past, Congress could step in and enact legislation that further broadens aiding and abetting liability and may open up even more cases like this again in the future, if not this specific case. I doubt they'll go quite as broad as the plaintiffs had to do in this case, but they might find some other ways to ratchet the opening for liability a little further that are going to open similar cases. And so we might see very similarly situated cases back before a court somewhere sooner than we think. Well, We are going to leave it there, but this wouldn't be rational security if we didn't leave you with some object lessons. No, that's a joke just based on who is present for this conversation. I was momentarily panicking. (laughs) We are going to leave it there, and there are no object lessons on the Lawfare podcast, although y'all should listen to Rational Security, where you can hear Quinta, Allen, and Scott with object lessons. Thank you all for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the intrepid, long-suffering Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, are you a material supporter of Lawfare yet? Because if you're not, There's this thing I want you to do. I want you to go to patreon.com slash lawfare and sign up to be a material supporter. You'll get ad-free podcasts. You'll get ad-free rational security. You'll get special events uh, like our classes that we sometimes teach. Uh, First episode of our new class is uh, on hacking is now available on YouTube. You'll get all that stuff and you'll know that you are supporting Lawfare, which you really should be doing. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music, it's performed by the one and only Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.